www.thepeacefulpeoplesmoney.com or contact Phil at 845-791-0944. And from listeners like you who donate at wjffradio.org. Well, it's 7 p.m. in the Catskills, so let's talk vets. Why not? I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Thanks for joining us tonight. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get started. Our guests this evening include Ashton Stewart, Program Manager of Sage Vets New York, Ben Pomerantz, Deputy Director of Program Development for New York State Veterans Affairs, and Roman Baca, Artistic Director and Co-Founder of Exit 12 Dance Company. June is a special month for many reasons. It is the beginning of summer, and this year, the return to a somewhat normal pre-pandemic routine, right? It's also Pride Month, celebrated each year to honor the 1969 Stonewall Uprising in Manhattan. The Stonewall Uprising was a tipping point for the gay liberation movement in the U.S. June is also PTSD Awareness Month. The psychological scars of war continue to plague our veterans, and PTSD is a major contributor to veterans' mental illness, homelessness, substance abuse, incarceration, and, yes, suicide. But first, here are your dates of note for June. June 6th is the anniversary of the World War II Allied invasion in Normandy, France, known as D-Day. That occurred in 1944. June 14th is Flag Day, a day we commemorate the adoption of the United States flag. June 14th is also the U.S. Army's birthday. June 20th is Father's Day. June 23rd is the Coast Guard Auxiliary birthday. June 25th, anniversary of the start of the Korean War in 1950. And June 27th is National PTSD Awareness Day. These days, our news seems to be dominated by the discussion of systemic racism, discrimination, and bias against everyone and everything. What is particularly interesting to me in this global discussion is that the roles of victim and perpetrator are interchangeable, depending on who is setting the narrative. And history tells us that discrimination has existed in the U.S. military since the beginning. Some of it is a result of personal bias of individual members, and some of it is systemic. Organized in 1978, SAGE is a national organization which provides advocacy and services to elder members of the LGBTQ community. Welcome, Ashton Stewart, Program Coordinator for an organization called SAGE Vets New York. Welcome to Let's Talk Vets, Ashton. Thank you so much, Doug. It's really nice to be back with you on Let's Talk Vets, and happy Pride Month to everyone. It's been a while since we uh, we spoke, so as a first order of business, I'd like you to briefly just remind everybody what Sage Vets is and what they do. Certainly. Well, thank you, Doug. Um, Sage Vets is a program that is offered by Sage. Sage is the nation's oldest agency and program that's been dedicated to older LGBT adults, founded in 1978 in New York City, now an international program. And they began uh, a program specific for older LGBT veterans in 2014 with support from the New York State Legislature um, because they realized that there are a high number of older LGBT veterans living right here in New York who could use some help accessing benefits, getting access to health care, and just addressing some of the issues and challenges they face during their service as many of them serve predating Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So bring us up to date on some of the things that are going on with Sage Vets right now. Sure. Um, Well, since we talked last year about this time, uh, we just celebrated the 10-year anniversary of the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell last fall. We had a special program for that. And in January of this year, 2021, we celebrated the end of the transgender ban in the military. So we're really pleased about that. But we're proud to have nominated our very first uh, transgender veteran to the state at Veterans Hall of Fame. And Renee Imperato is a Vietnam veteran uh, who is also a social justice icon 
who has a rich history as an effective advocate for veterans health care. And one of the most important priorities for Renee is getting access for all veterans at 100% level. But yeah, last year, despite all the challenges associated with the pandemic, we did really well with helping out veterans. We reached over 40,000 individuals, half of whom are veterans. We assisted with benefits and disability compensation claims with a total of 43 legal referrals in 2020 with nine legal victories, which we're very proud of. So this year, we're looking at pushing that out a little bit more to see how we can improve these numbers and, and reach more people and give them the assistance that they need and certainly deserve. Well, the pandemic changed everything. And what were some of the unique challenges that your organization faced how did they affect your outreach services, and how did you get around them? That is a fantastic question. Yes, the pandemic did change everything. The top of the list for us was the uh, closure of the National Personnel Record Center, which is the uh, lifeline for veterans to get access to not only DD-214s, but also their entire personnel files and medical and service records. They shut down at the beginning of COVID. There's still no that full capacity. They're only producing DD-214s for uh, burials, which they consider the only emergency that they're going to help with. Um, they're not accepting any other sorts of emergencies for those who are living and really need access to benefits. We've got a case right now that we're trying to help out a veteran get access to the VA, and we need his records to show that you know there was something that happened here that was wrong. There's a two-year requirement to get access to the VA. This veteran was discharged five months shy of that because of his sexual orientation. And we need to, like, get these records to show that there was something going on here um, that led to this discharge that was discriminating. An improvement that we saw due to the pandemic was online access to everything, including communicating with our partners and collaborators, improved significantly. Um, They made notaries available online. People were better at uh, scheduling meetings on Zoom and continuing to work, even though that nobody really has an office. Um, we're all working from home, and uh, we were able to keep things going, and that was just fantastic. And it's it's really nice to be able to, to continue to work using mail, um, and the internet has just been a real uh, saving grace here. Well, I would have to assume that some of the changes will become your new normal. And what are those that uh, you will adopt now as a regular course of business going forward? Well, we've done a lot of virtual programming, which has been nice because we can offer the access to anybody. They don't have to travel, and neither do we. And so we've been able to reach a much wider audience. For instance, I, I did a program this week for the Delaware Valley's Veteran Consortium because there's no program like SageVets in their area, and they wanted to commemorate pride and also learn a little bit more about issues, LGBT elders who served in the military face. So that is, I think, a result of the pandemic. And I think that everybody has become a lot more accessible because they have upgraded their technology. And I don't think that that's going to change. And as far as those in remote areas that don't currently have access to the Internet, there are programs that are being put together to help out those communities. There's a FCC program right now called Emergency Broadband Benefit to try to bring the Internet to those regions. So I, I hope to see a continuation with that. So last time we talked, the New York State Return to Honor Act was about a year old, and uh, now we're coming up on two years. How's it working out for you? The New York State Restoration of Honor Act has been terrifically helpful to our program. Um, Early on when this bill was being formed, uh, legislators were asking us our opinion, um, and we expressed the fact that a lot of these cases where people kicked out for sexual orientation and gender identity are uh, a little bit more involved. It's like a third situation happens. Uh, Either they got an altercation, they went AWOL, something else happened, but it was all due to those discriminating policies. So They added uh, some other conditions, including MST, which is military sexual trauma, PTSD, and TBI, which is traumatic brain injury. Any veteran is discharged with an OTH discharge because of one of these conditions. They are allowed to appeal to the New York State Division of Veteran Services and have their discharge upgraded to honorable. 
and therefore get access to New York State benefits. This has been huge. We've helped out uh, several veterans so far with their applications. We've had one turnaround already, and it was meritorious. That veteran is feeling so much more confident about his experience, and he feels validated for his service over six years in the Navy. And then it's also really inspiring other states. Rhode Island was the first state to pass this type of legislation. New York was the second. And now, just last February, uh, Colorado signed their own version of the Restoration of Honor Act into law. And Illinois is looking into similar legislation. California already has a bill that their legislature is working on, similar to the Restoration of Honor Act, and New Jersey as well. And we're just really excited about that because people are reaching out to us to find out how it works, how it's benefiting the population, and how they can make their own version of the bill. And let me just add one other thing. In New York State, there was one regulation in the Restoration of Honor that Governor Cuomo just signed an amendment, um, which now allows uh, veterans to have PTSD or TBI or any of the pre-qualifying conditions for the Restoration of Honor Act. They can get those diagnoses from a, a licensed healthcare provider in New York State, from anyone. Previously, the requirement was they had to get that diagnosis only from the VA. So this is huge. Um, It it opens up the opportunity for a lot more people. And we're really just delighted that the governor signs that. That's good because it was a little like the... uh the fox garden, the hen house for, right? Yes, it was like, <laughs> yes, you're exactly right, Doug. A lot of these veterans don't have access to health care because of their discharge. And so I, I think it, it was partially an oversight, um, but the fact that they corrected it so quickly is just remarkable. Well, and let's be clear, this affects uh, a lot more people than members of the LGBTQ community, right? Yes, sir. It certainly does. Um, there were a lot of veterans who did struggle with different issues, and their discharge could be related to TBI or MST or PTSD and not have anything to do with sexual orientation or gender identity. And those veterans are also eligible to uh, apply for an upgrade. And Stage Vets is really proud of that. We're incredibly inclusive. We are a program for older LGBT veterans, but I often get calls from people who are under 50 years old who are LGBT and people who are cisgender and straight that just need some help. We don't turn anybody away because when a veteran calls for help, there's no way we're ever going to like say, I'm sorry, you're not qualified. And we're just proud to help anybody that reaches out to us. Well, speaking of being dialed in, you probably have your finger on the pulse of a national piece of legislation that seems to be stalled out. And uh, I was wondering what your opinion is on that and where you think it is now. And does it have a chance of getting support and becoming law? I think it does. And that would be uh, Senator Gillibrand and Senator Schatz's Restore Honor to Service Bill. That is basically the Restoration of Honor Act at the federal level. Um, and that would uh, be for anybody kicked out for sexual orientation and gender identity with a less than honorable to get access to federal benefits. It has been stalled out. It was introduced in 2019. However, because there's so much interest from states who are putting their own bills together to address this population and this real discriminating history that our military needs to overcome, the more states that sign this kind of legislation, the more pressure will be placed on the federal government to really pay attention to this and make it a priority. It's always perplexed me why veterans in general often have to fight the very people that sent them off into harm's way for the benefits that they've earned. I couldn't agree with you more. A lot of countries don't have the same setup that they do here. Veterans are able to get the health care they need without the red tape. This is why it's important to, to have programs like Stage Vets to just to try to acknowledge and address issues that a certain population has faced. I mean, women veterans have had different experiences. Veterans of color have had different experiences. Sure, everybody is a veteran, but when it comes to housing and healthcare and mental health, substance abuse, all the other issues affecting veterans, there, there's services available, but when it comes to LGBT veteran needs, 
from our LGBT brothers and sisters who have historically been criminalized and then banned from speaking about their sexual orientation during the Don't Ask, Don't Tell years. And now they're being legally protected. And that's only been for the last 10 years. There's a lot of things that happen in those years that we need to account for and we need to address head on. And the VA is really great. They have an LGBT veteran care coordinator program at every VA. And they're starting to offer a lot more trainings for the LGBT population, not only for the veterans, but also for their staff to make sure that the, the culture will be shifted and there will be a lot more acceptance um, just from veterans walking in the door. Um, that's been one of the, the things that has kept LGBT older vets out of the VA is they just don't want to go in there if they don't feel that they're going to be treated with dignity and respectfully. Okay, what are you guys focused on for 20? 21, what is your priority? We have a couple. One is we're trying to figure out how to do a call to action to, to get the National Record Center open again. Um, this is something that we've been talking about with some of our partners. So that's definitely a priority. There is also another part of the Restoration of Honor Act that uh, does not include people with punitive discharges. We're seeing if that can be changed, too. We haven't really got much more than that other than the desire to make it more available because we do see sometimes there are punitive discharges that aren't warranted. And we don't want to just count those veterans out without first hearing from them and letting the State Division of Veteran Services have a chance to make their own decision. And then the other thing is that we're really looking forward to expanding. And we've been getting more attention and, and more volunteers in the Finger Lake region in particular. So we're really looking at uh, developing the program in that area so we can reach more veterans. There's over a million veterans in New York State, many of whom are LGBT, and many of whom are over 50 and, and living upstate New York. So we're just doing our best to broaden our outreach and get more people into the program that we can help. Okay. So how can our listeners get involved or support Sage Vets or contact you if there's a caregiver listening possibly for a uh, an elder vet from your community? How do they get involved? What do they do? Well, thank you, Doug. That's a great point to make. SageVets is actually part of the caregiving program at Sage. In New York City, they have a really uh, robust caregiving program. So veterans who are living in New York City can always get partnered up with a, a caregiver as well, or somebody to support the caregiver. And when that need is extended beyond New York City, uh, SageVets can still help partner up with another agency for that particular need. Um, if people want to find out more about Sage Vets or volunteer to help us out, they can reach me personally, Ashton Stewart. My email address is A as in Ashton Stewart, which is S-T-E-W-A-R-T, at sageusa.org. Or feel free to call me at 201-256-1357, which, yes, is the New Jersey area code, but this is my Google number because I am working remotely, <laughs> which is something I also hope changes soon. Well, Ashton, thank you for taking the time again to be part of Let's Talk Bets on Radio Catskill, WJFF. So welcome Ben Pomerantz, Deputy Director of Program Development for New York State Division of Veterans Affairs. Ben, when last we spoke for our July 26, 2020 edition of Let's Talk Vets, we discussed all the services that New York State provides for our veterans. So what's going on now? Well, nice to be back with you, Doug. Thank you very much for the time tonight. And hope everyone who's listening had a peaceful and reflective Memorial Day. Uh, first piece of big news. Last time you and I talked, we talked about the Restoration of Honor Act quite a bit. And just as a refresh, this is a way that a veteran who received an administrative discharge from the military that was less than honorable, where that discharge was related to either that veteran's mental health condition or to that veteran's uh, treatment by their, their higher ups in the military, uh, on the basis of their sexual orientation or their gender identity or expression, have the ability through the Restoration of Honor Act to have New York State benefits restored to them. So even though their character of discharge itself is not changing, 
it opens up the door for them to check the character of discharge box to qualify for more than 50 benefits here in New York State that have a character of discharge uh, criterion that go along with them. So the big news on that front is just this week, Governor Cuomo signed a bill into law which makes the Restoration of Honor Act even more inclusive than it was before. One of the challenges that some veterans were facing was that the previous iteration of the law required that the veteran, if they're going to use the mental health pathway to pursue a Restoration of Honor Act decision, the previous iteration of the law required that that individual get a mental health diagnosis from a U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs uh, facility. And that was a challenge because for a lot of veterans who have that less than honorable characterization of discharge, even if that character was unjustly issued to them, they were facing barriers in getting health care from the VA. So it created kind of a catch-22 situation. The good news with this new law, that catch-22 situation is gone. And thankfully so, because now it does not matter who the diagnosis comes from. As long as that mental health diagnosis is affirmed by a mental health professional, be it from the VA, from the private sector, doesn't matter. That is sufficient to demonstrate the existence of that mental health condition for Restoration of Honor Act purposes. So that's a real important improvement, one that could easily fly below the radar of public consciousness. It's kind of a minute change, but that minute change in the law is going to make it a much more inclusive and much more barrier-free statute uh, for veterans and their families across New York State. So that's a good piece of news. Another big piece of news is New York State, for the first time in its history, has a site selected for the state's first ever state-owned veteran cemetery. By unanimous vote, the site selection committee, which was comprised of appointees from Governor Cuomo, from the New York State Senate, and the New York State Assembly, have selected the Samson Veterans Memorial Cemetery as the place that will become uh, New York State's first state veteran cemetery, as long as all the the I's are dotted and T's are crossed budgetarily. And this is a wonderful development. Veterans and their families have advocated for many years to have a state veteran cemetery here in New York. First of all, Samson itself is military ground. This is the former site of the Samson Naval Training Station and the former site of the Samson Air Force Base. So there is a rich military tradition of airmen and sailors passing through that site and receiving the preparations that they needed to receive to fight for and defend this country. Also, Romulus, New York, where Samson is located, is a very short drive from the community of Waterloo. Waterloo is recognized nationwide as the place where Memorial Day began. So a perfect fit to have the state's first veteran cemetery that is state-owned just a short drive away from the community where Memorial Day, the holiday of remembrance of the fallen, uh, was first celebrated in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. So it's, it's a beautiful site. There is plenty of acreage. There already is a veteran cemetery started on that site, which has been beautifully tended to by people in the, the county government and also volunteers throughout the county who have kept it in compliance with National Cemetery Administration standards and made it exactly what you'd want to see in a final resting place for those who have served this country. So that's a great development. And then a third piece of important news that has happened uh, since 2021 dawned is the creation of three new presumptive conditions for Vietnam veterans impacted by exposure to Agent Orange. Now, Agent Orange was the herbicide that was used quite heavily by the U.S. military in Vietnam and other areas in Southeast Asia as well. And as many veterans already know, there's a list of conditions, medical conditions, that range from type 2 diabetes to prostate cancer to peripheral neuropathy, Parkinson's disease, and, and, and several more that the VA presumes it 
if you have any of those conditions, that condition was at least as likely as not caused by your time in Vietnam and your exposure to Agent Orange, thus leading to a disability compensation award. Now, this year, after a very long back and forth battle with advocates and the federal government, the federal government added three new conditions to that list. So now, in addition to all of the conditions that are already on that list, bladder cancer, Parkinson's-like symptoms or Parkinsonians, and hypothyroidism are conditions that now the VA recognizes as being presumptively linked for those veterans who served in-country in Vietnam and in certain other locations in Southeast Asia as well as being presumptively linked to being exposed to Agent Orange uh, in those locations. Opens up the pathway, frees the pathway a lot more for those veterans to be able to receive disability compensation for those conditions. Right now, the VA has said that they're going through the process, as they're required to do by law, of reviewing back claims, okay, claims that previously had been denied for any of those three conditions. And they're supposed to be reaching out to the veterans and to the veterans' families and saying, okay, now that we've added these three conditions to the presumptive list, now we're able to grant that benefit to you. Here's my recommendation. If you are a veteran who served in Vietnam and you suffer from bladder cancer or hypothyroidism or Parkinson's-like symptoms, my recommendation is not to wait, not to wait for the VA to contact you. You can be proactive. You can reach out to the VA. You can work with the Veterans Benefits Advisors for our agency who can reach out to the VA on your behalf. Uh, but that way, it helps to get that claim in faster and, and just get it adjudicated faster and hopefully the benefit of disability compensation awarded faster. So even though we're seeing the VA saying, yes, we're reaching out to people now, we're doing our due diligence, you don't have to wait. You don't have to wait for the VA to reach out to you. You can reach out to them. And if you want to reach out to any of our veterans benefits advisors in any of our field offices around the state, it is simple to do so. And in fact, it's actually easier than ever because one more good piece of good news since 2021 is we now have the ability for you to book appointments on the Internet. So just like always, you can call 1-888-838-7697, and you can make an appointment with a Veterans Benefits Advisor that way. Or now if you go to our website, www.veterans.ny.gov, we have a program now that we're using called Microsoft Bookings. And it allows you right on that website to look through the calendar of a Division of Veteran Services field office near you, see what the availability of the benefits advisor is, and schedule an appointment to speak with that advisor right through the Internet. And for, for those who would prefer to have the appointments conducted virtually as opposed to in person, we can absolutely do that. We've been doing that since the COVID-19 pandemic began. So we can use Microsoft Teams, we can use the telephone, we can use really any means that you can imagine. So we can have that communication with a veteran or with somebody in that veteran's family about the benefits that they've earned. So all of that to say, it's been a busy start to 2021 and a lot of good things for New York's veterans and their families going on. That's what I love about talking to you, Ben. Uh, you always have great news for us. So the next time I'm Feeling a little down, I think I'll just call you. Well, that's always good. Well, I'll welcome that call. <laughs> hey, um, do you have any knowledge of the status of the federal version of the Re Restoration of Honor Act? Last I've heard about the federal version is that there's still a lot of conversations taking place about it. There's still, still debates and committees going on about it. I do not believe it has advanced to the floor in either House of Congress at this point, at least not to the best of my knowledge. Now, something we are seeing, though, are other states that have emulated what New York has done and also what Connecticut has done regarding the Restoration of Honor Act. For example, we saw the state of Colorado this year enact their version of the Restoration of Honor Act. So this is good to see, uh, seeing that this concept is spreading uh, beyond just a couple of states here in the Northeast, and hopefully at some point it will be nationwide. 
not too long ago, we did a panel discussion on the next stage in Orange, which is the burn pit issue. Burn pits, absolutely. Anything going on in your world with that? So the biggest thing on the burn pits right off the bat that we always tell veterans who are exposed to the toxic fumes from the burn pits is the VA is maintaining something called a burn pit registry. And we recommend that all veterans who were exposed to the fumes in the burn pits and who feel they may have a medical condition today that was related in some way to that exposure, go out and register. It doesn't take long, but get your name and your contact information on the burn pit registry. Well, why is that? Because if and hopefully when, and I'm, I'm really hoping it's when and not if, the VA does recognize certain conditions as being presumptively linked with the burn pit exposure, then there's going to be a, a scramble of sorts, right? The proverbial race to the courthouse for veterans and their families to get their claims in for benefits. What the VA is supposed to do with that burn pit registry is if that time comes where the science says what we all think the science is going to say, then the VA is supposed to use the information in that burn pit registry to proactively reach out to those veterans and say, okay, you, you made certain to get your information to us. Now we're notifying you that this claim that you filed that may have been denied, now it can be granted. And hopefully, hopefully, if the laws all work out the way we hope they will, hopefully granted back to the original date of filing that claim. Which also leads to a second point. If you have a medical condition that you think was linked to the burn pit exposure, especially if you have some kind of medical evidence that you can use showing that in the judgment of some medical expert, this condition you have today, be it a respiratory condition or be it a skin condition or whatever, is in some way linked to the toxic fumes from those burn pits, file that claim and don't be shy about continuing to pursue that claim, okay? It's something that the VA calls continuous prosecution. And all continuous prosecution means is you haven't let the ball drop. You haven't let the claim die. So let's say you file an initial claim for benefits with the VA, right? You get a decision back from the VA. You then have one year from the date of that decision to commence an appeal, all right? Get that decision back. You're still unhappy. You have one year from the date of that decision to commence another appeal. The VA has three different appellate lanes, and there is no limit to how many times you can utilize those lanes as long as you meet the requirements under the law of pointing out either an issue that the VA missed before or presenting the VA with new evidence that was not part of the claim previously or whatever. So if you are able to keep that claim alive, that pretty much guarantees that if the burn pit uh, cases ever do come to fruition, then you will be able to get the benefits paid all the way back to the original date when you filed that claim for that medical condition under this concept of continuous prosecution. So even though it seems like right now, well, it might be kind of futile to file this because these things keep getting denied, keep pursuing it, keep that claim alive. And hopefully if, if and hopefully when that time comes, when we see the burn pits recognized as the source of these various medical conditions, it will lead to the maximum benefit payout for those veterans who have kept those claims going. Well, you're always uh, full of important news. Well, um, I, I hope that at some point we're going to see some really good news on the burn pit front. You're right. This is kind of the Agent Orange of the next generation, right? Because for a long time there was the haggling back and forth about Agent Orange and what did it cause and what didn't it cause and what does the science show and what do the politicians say it shows. That's kind of where we are now uh, with, with the burn pits. And we are seeing every year in the halls of Congress, in both chambers of Congress, uh, legislation put forward around burn pits and ar around this push to recognize that the toxic fumes from a dumping ground where everything from batteries to the carcasses of dead animals are being burned together, uh, it 
does take a medical toll, and that's what everyone's driving toward now is getting that scientific proof that is clear and convincing enough to hopefully carry the day, just like eventually the proof around Agent Orange finally carried the day. The problem is it's hard to wait. It's a, it's miserable to have to wait, and I, I've worked with and know many veterans who are very frustrated about what that wait around the burn pits looks like. So hopefully at some point there'll be a light at the end of that tunnel. And add to that, if I did it in my backyard, the EPA would be here in a heartbeat. I would certainly hope so, yes. I, I never saw the burn pits myself, of course, but the stories that I've heard are pretty vivid. And you're right, they're not exactly EPA approved. Yep. Okay, Ben, well, thank you again so much for taking a little bit of time to update us on everything that's going on with New York State Veterans Affairs. Well, thank you very much, Doug. Pleasure to speak with you, and thank you, as always, for keeping veterans and their families uh, who listen to your radio show fully informed around what's going on. Well, we'll talk to you soon. Be well. All right, and you too. Thank you, sir. Over the years, I've had the honor of interviewing many veterans, and it's become very apparent to me the role creative arts plays in healing or at least mitigating the destructive physical and psychological wounds of battle. And while interviewing a number of folks for this program, the name Exit 12 Dance Company kept coming up. So here we are, and I want to thank you first for your service and your work to bridge the civilian-military divide and helping other vets find peace. Well, welcome, Roman. It's an absolute pleasure to be here, Doug. Thank you. So, start at the beginning. You're in high school. Your sights are set on a technical career, maybe engineering or something to do with math. However, you developed an interest in dance, hip-hop, jazz, ballet. Uh, there's something about performing for you. Tell us about that. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I, I had a dear friend in high school that was a ballerina, and hearing her stories from the studio and watching her performances, I got very interested in taking classes and performing. So I started in musical theater. And then uh, as I was training, gained a love for classical ballet and moved to the East Coast to pursue it professionally and ended up uh, dancing as a professional dancer for a few years. All right. So I have to ask, uh, you enlisted in the Marine Corps. <laughs> what 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 in the world compelled you to do that? I think when I was younger and I was I was training to be a dancer, I had an opportunity to dance in roles that I thought was making an impact in the world, telling stories that were important. And when I was a professional dancer, those stories weren't being told. We were doing things that audiences loved, like Swan Lake and Sleeping Beauty, but we weren't telling important stories. And so I felt unfulfilled. I felt like I wasn't helping people. I felt like I wasn't being of service or, or having an impact. And I felt that the Marine Corps could give me the tools and the opportunities to do that. So how'd that work out for you? Um, I would say it was good and bad. I think, you know, I was deployed to Fallujah, Iraq in 2005. And the buildup was very impactful. We were getting trained like we were going to be dropped in the middle of a, uh, the Wild West with people shooting out us at us from every corner, out every window. And the reality of Fallujah was a little bit different. While there were definite threats and definite attacks, a lot of our work was also working with the locals in the local villages, trying to build a rapport, trying to build relationships. And we could only do that by being human. And still there was a weapon that was separating us from the populace, but we worked hard to make a positive impact in the places we went. And so while there was some negative impacts, I feel that they were measured by the positive impacts we tried to institute. 
So it's the age-old dichotomy of defeat the enemy while protecting and making friends with the public, and it's often hard to differentiate between friend and foe, isn't it? Absolutely hard to differentiate between friend and foe, especially in uh, urban combat, like like in Fallujah, where there are no designating uniforms or, you know, where insurgents would run in, take a couple shots and run off, or where we were dealing with, you know, artillery or, or mortars that were fired from far away. So, you know, it was constant danger. It was a constant call on us to be vigilant and alert um, while trying to do good things. And so you, returning home, a changed person, conflicted by what you had done or failed to do, and angry at many things on many levels. Tell us about that uh, returning home and your, I guess we'll call it your new reality. I think the biggest challenge for me returning home was lack of focus. I didn't know what to do post-military. And so I thought I should do what so many other people were doing, buying a house, um, trying to find someone to spend their life with, getting a good job. And I thought I was doing okay at that. But my girlfriend at the time sat me down and she wanted to talk about things that she had seen in me. And she said, you know, she could see I was angry. I was anxious. A lot of the time I was depressed and she wanted to do something to help. And I thought that that she was just going to leave and that this was kind of the, you know, come to Jesus moment where she's like, you know, I'm noticing all of these things. You're angry. You're making people afraid of you. I'm out of here. But Instead, she challenged me and she said, if you could do anything in the world and not have to worry about anything else, what would you do? And I told her I would start a dance company. When I was a dancer, I had this yearning to be a choreographer and to start telling stories that were important. And I thought that telling her that I wanted to start a dance company would do one of two things. Either it would kind of throw us in the direction of doing something completely crazy or the idea was crazy enough that it would jostle, you know, her enough to take off or to leave. Thankfully it did the first thing. She jumped at the opportunity and said, let's do it. So you chose um, something relatively easy. Let's start a dance company in the middle of New York city. Um, You know, we're, uh, as you say in your film, competition for dancers is uh, tremendous. The one shot of your film, you're walking on, uh, I guess it's Broadway, it looks like around Times Square, trying to gin up interest uh, to passers-by to come see a production that you're putting together. And um, tell us about that experience. That's got to be tough, right? It was incredibly tough, and it was tough on two levels. So like you said, starting a dance company in New York City is not the easiest thing to do because the competition is intense. At the time in 2007, 2008, when we started Exit 12, there were a lot of small companies that were popping up, a lot of project-based companies. And so the competition was crazy. And I was working a day job at the time. I was living in Connecticut. My wife and I would take the train into New York City to go to rehearsals. I would take the train in to go to classes on fundraising, on grant writing, on nonprofit tax law, um, so I could learn how to do this. So our, our schedules were completely full. And to couple that with doing something completely new, telling these stories about the military and about the military experience was it was difficult to get buy-in because we would go to these showcases in New York City where it was a mix of dance companies that all had seven to ten minutes to put something on stage and you would have in the dressing rooms the local mix of like modern dancers and ballet dancers and some doing some weird performance art And then you would have these people that would come in and start getting into military uniforms. And it was different. It was 
uh, hard uh, to get people to buy into you know, letting us put this on stage. But once they saw the stories and once they saw the layers of complexity and the layers of, of human impact that we were trying to communicate, we started doing more shows and impacting more people. Like many new organizations uh, slash companies, et cetera, there were times when you wondered if you should continue. And then um, you recount a seminal event which affected two of your very close friends, which made you rethink your primary objective and branch out, as it were, to more directly helping other veterans. Let's talk about that. I think in in another episode, you're going to interview a very close friend of ours, uh, Everett Cox, and he likes to wear this shirt. It's a just a white T-shirt, and emblazoned on it, like if it was a football jersey, is the number 22. And underneath it, it says a day. And at one point in our nation's history, we were losing uh, 22 veterans a day to suicide. Uh, Not long ago, like you so eloquently stated, we were putting all of this work on stage and we were trying to tell these stories and we felt like nobody understood them. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know if we should continue this work, if I should go do something else. I was burning the candle at both ends and I was exhausted. And then I got a call from one of my Marine buddies and he was uh, getting the platoon back together because one of our platoon mates had taken his own life. And I think that was the first time I felt that incredible sense of responsibility to one, find a way to honor his life and his service as a Marine and to continue this work. And then another another Marine that I was close to took his own life. And I think we've lost our third uh, member of our, our small Marine Corps family uh, just a couple of years ago to suicide. And back when uh, we lost our first brother, I felt like we needed to continue. And we had to figure out a way to not only put this stuff on stage, but to start positively impacting veterans. And one of the ways that I felt we could do that is through movement and through art. So we developed a uh, veterans movement workshop. The interesting thing that was happening is that veterans would come to our movement workshop and they would create and they would imagine and they would visualize. And suddenly that feeling of being a creator, of being an innovator in them was sparked. And the best result from one of our workshops is when a veteran left our workshop and said, wow, I just did that. I wonder what else I can do. And, and Everett's a great example. He, he went out uh, from after creating in writing and dancing and moving. And he went out and under his own power became a peer veteran counselor in the town where he lives to start positively impacting veterans so that they would learn that they have more options and that they can be creative and that they can move forward in their lives. And that's, that's why we do the, the movement workshops. Where can folks view that the film that I saw? Uh, the, the Exit 12, Move by War, our award-winning documentary, is on Vimeo. It was a Vimeo staff pick of 2019. And if you want to see it, it's at our website, exit12danceco.org. And you can, I believe there's a button right on the, right on the landing page uh, where you can see the whole 23-minute film. Okay, it's and it's a great film. Next project, next film? So right now we just finished a, a three-week tour to uh, my hometown of Albuquerque, New Mexico, where we impacted not only veterans in the local area, but Native, Indigenous, and Pueblo people, highlighting the service that they give to the country that is often ignored. 
And this project spurned an idea that we're going to come back to Santa Fe and team up with an organization called Horses for Heroes and think of a way that we can combine their efforts with our efforts and, and create something extremely transformative and impactful. If our listeners or anybody else that hears this program, which is now available on a podcast, by the way, would like to help get involved, support Exit 12, how do they do that? Where do they go? What do they do? Right to our website, exit12danceco.org, and we have a Get Involved link right at the top. So thank you very, very much, Roman. Doug, what a, what a wonderful conversation. And I really appreciate your time to do this for Let's Talk Batchman. Have a great day. It's been an absolute pleasure, Doug. Well, thanks again. Enjoy your day. You as well. Bye-bye. Our sincere thanks to Ashton Stewart, Director of Programs at Sage Vets New York. Ben Pomerantz, Deputy Director, Program Development, New York Veterans Affairs, and Roman Baca, Artistic Director and Co-Founder of Exit 12 Dance Company. And, of course, to you for joining us once again. Please let your friends know about this program and share with us your comments and suggestions for future programs. Also, send us your upcoming events so we may get them on the air. You can email me at vets at wjffradio.org. You can leave us a voicemail at 845-431-6500. And don't forget, Let's Talk Vets is now available widely as a podcast. Well, we'll leave you tonight with a medley of songs you might have heard on the radio in 1944 as performed by the U.S. Coast Guard Band. And while our Commander-in-Chief neglected to publicly remember D-Day, we veterans will never forget our brothers and sisters who made the ultimate sacrifice. Until next time, I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Thanks for listening. Thank you for your service. Company dismissed.
Radio Catskill's fabulous online auction is bursting with great gifts and amazing items for you to bid on, including the DeBruce Tasting Menu, the Chi Hive, the Calicoon Theater, Catskill's Cycle Works, River Family Wellness. Win great items and support Radio Catskill. Register and bid now. Go to wjffradio.org. Bid, win, support Radio Catskill. WJFF Jeffersonville and W233AH Monticello. Hi there, I'm James Keelahan. WJFF is home to many homegrown terrific shows. Folk Plus is an hour of engaging cuts that you might feel were assembled just for you. Pull up the archive site at WJFFradio.org and see what Angela's theme was for the last week. Hi, I'm Angela Page, and that's James Keelahan, one of the people I play on my show. I play roots music, traditional singer-songwriter. I hope you'll tune me in anytime on the archives or Sundays at 4. Support comes from the Law Office of John Ferrara in Monticello, providing legal services in the areas of matrimonial and family law and criminal defense. john.ferrara557 at gmail.com. Support comes from 
The Vintage House on Main Street, Jeffersonville, featuring eclectic furnishings, clothes.